Bill and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans, the third chapter. Romans chapter 3 this evening, and we'll begin looking at verse 9 through 20. Now, if you've come here tonight to hear a message that will make you feel good, you've come to the wrong place. I don't even feel good about preaching it. uh, Because we're talking about the way God sees us, and not what most of us would think, or like to think, about ourselves. You know, most of us have an image of ourselves that's somewhat different from reality. Uh, We may feel that we're fatter or thinner than we really are. Others may believe that they're smarter or perhaps even dumber than they really are. Uh, This same deceptive self-image slips into our view of our spiritual selves as well. Most, if not all of us, believe that we are basically good people. And we want to think that we're in a good, uh, good shape spiritually. Well, this isn't just a situation that's true among members of uh, the church, but nearly every person who exists around us has an idea that, you know, things are not really so bad. Uh, everything's well within my heart. But sadly, that's just not the truth. And the verses we're going to look at tonight tell us about the man in my mirror. The person in my mirror. You know, every day we look at a person in the mirror who is nothing like we think that they are. And this passage reveals the truth that we are nothing more than sinners in the eyes of the Lord. And we see here that Paul was, has just told his readers that the immoral as well as the moral pagan are condemned before the Lord. And then he tells them that the moral and the immoral Jew stand condemned as well. Now he's telling them that every man, no matter who he is, is a sinner in the sight of God. Now, folks, that's a hard pill for some people to, to swallow. What, me? I'm okay. And yet understanding that truth is the first step to coming to God for salvation. Tonight, I want to listen, us to look at these verses and, and, and uh, talk about the man in my mirror. And as I preach the message, realize the man in your mirror, the person in your mirror, is no different from the one that I look at every day in my mirror. Hopefully, if there's someone here tonight who's never come to realize that they are a sinner, tonight will be the night when the light comes on and they see themselves as they really are. And by the same token, those of us who are saved, we need to be reminded, I believe, from time to time, that we have no ground from which to boast on before the Lord We are what we are by the grace of God. So let's look at the man in my mirror tonight. First of all, sin is a universal problem. Sin is a universal problem. In verse 9 it says, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
And so we see sin is a universal problem. And first of all, it touches every race. Paul tells us that sin is a problem that affects both the Jew and the Gentile. Regardless of the color of your skin, you're still a sinner. No one is exempt from the stain of sin. The white man, the black man, the red man, the brown man, the yellow man are all sinners in the sight of the Lord. It's a universal problem. So it touches every race. Secondly, it touches every religion. Again in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. Uh, for we, are, we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Paul tells us that the Jew and the pagan are both sinners. It matters not how dedicated they may be to their religion. They're still sinners in the sight of God. Notice the words, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. Paul tells his his readers, and I believe he's speaking to Christians for the most part here, that they're no different than anyone else. All men are sinners. There's no escaping this terrible truth. Now, many have mistaken the idea that believing strongly enough in your religion has the power to take away sins. Some think that sincerity is the key of having sin removed. And yet the truth of the matter is, no one has been saved by religion or by sincerity. You can be sincere, but you can also be sincerely wrong. You can be sincerely believe anything you want, but you'll be sincerely wrong. You'll be deceived. You'll be headed to hell. It touches every race, it touches every religion, it tarnishes all righteousness. Notice verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Here is God's indictment of the sinner. He looks at them and says that no man has the ability to produce righteousness. In fact, the Bible tells us that the best we can produce in the flesh is filthy rags in the sight of God. The best we can do will never be good enough. The problem with that idea is that Jesus said that we had to possess perfect righteousness to get to heaven. In and of ourselves, that's absolutely impossible. I can never be good enough to please God because I'm a sinner and everything I touch is ruined by my sin. It's kind of like the Midas touch in reverse. When we're, we sinners touch something, it doesn't turn to gold. It turns to junk in the sight of God. And man's problem is that man always measures himself against the wrong measuring stick. We will all look at our neighbors and say, well, I'm certainly not as bad as they are. People do that and then they feel like they have somehow are superior and pleasing to God because they're not as wicked as their neighbor. And yet what man forgets is that dead is still dead. Lost is still lost. Now imagine for a moment that some people, let's say in Hawaii, that's a long ways away from here, it's way across the ocean. You'd all probably like to be there tonight. But let's just say that there's some people in Hawaii that wanted to come to the mainland. And uh, they're going to try a pretty unconventional method of getting here. 
Instead of taking boats or planes, they decide if they can see if they can jump across the ocean. You say, that's a ridiculous, preacher. Well, stay with me here. You know, some of them are in pretty great shape. Uh, They can run and run and they can jump with all their might and they might make it 25 feet or so. Others who aren't in such good shape might make it 10 or 15. And still others who are in very bad shape might have difficulty jumping five feet. Now those who jump the farthest might look down on those who jump the least. And they might feel superior. But the fact is, none of them are able to go the distance. That's a pretty silly illustration. But that's exactly what some people are trying to do. They're trying to jump into heaven on the basis of their being in better spiritual shape than someone else. People can try anything they please, but the fact remains there is only one way to cure the sin problem and make it into heaven, and that's through faith in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we trust ourselves to get to heaven, we will trust ourselves right into hell. You see, sin is a horrible problem. It has only one cure. And that cure is faith in Jesus Christ. So sin is a universal problem. Secondly, sin is an ugly problem. It's an ugly problem. Now we'll see this in verses 10 through 18 here, but the sinful nature of man will always manifest itself in his life. These verses tell us all that the problems that a man has is because he's a sinner. And these statements prove that while sin is a universal problem, Everybody must deal with it, but it's also an ugly problem. Notice what sin has done to the sinner. Notice here also how Paul quotes Old Testament scripture, and particularly he quotes the Psalms. First of all, sin has tarnished our spirit. Notice verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. This has already been touched on. We've already looked at this verse, but the fact is that we are sinners is why we are barred from entering heaven. And simply stated, we are are wicked to the core of our beings, and there's no good at all in any of us. That may bother some people, but it's true nonetheless. You can search the world over from town to town and interview every one of the six or seven billion people in this world, And you'll not find one righteous man. You might find some who seem to be better than others. But when they are judged by the standard, the perfect righteousness of God himself, then the truth will be plain to see. They are guilty before the Lord. Men may look good outwardly, but inwardly they are rotten and wicked. Psalm 14 verses 1 through 3 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. You see, Jesus, or Paul here, is quoting the Psalms. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looketh down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They were all gone aside. They were all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. 
And so sin has tarnished our spirit. Secondly, sin has tarnished our senses. Now verse 11 says here, There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. This verse teaches us the terrible truth that has dulled our minds to the truth of God. We cannot understand Him, and there's not a single person in this world who will seek God if left to Himself. Nobody just decides one morning, I'm going to go look for God. When a person begins to hunger for the Lord, it's because the Spirit of the Lord has been working in their heart. It's the work of God. Man is a rebel. He's dead until the Lord quickens his heart in the sense that gives him a hunger for God. Sin has left us with spiritual brain damage, if you please. So sin has tarnished our senses. Thirdly, sin has tarnished our souls. Verse 12. They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. This verse makes the accusation that all sinners are wayward. They're worthless to the Lord. And it's the same idea that's mentioned in Isaiah 53 and verse 6. Or it's pictured in the parable of the lost sheep in Luke chapter 15. And the picture is one who is unusable to the Lord. Not only has sin dulled our minds and damaged our spirits, but it's dirtied our vessels. God will not use a dirty vessel. It is worthless until it has been cleansed and made worthy of the Lord. And that is why he says there is none that doeth good. We might be tempted to disagree with that statement. After all, someone might say, surely uh, there's a difference between, oh, let's say, uh, Mother Teresa, who spent years working among the untouchables of India. There's a difference between her and, uh, say, Saddam Hussein, who was responsible for untold misery and suffering. I'm not promoting Mother Teresa, okay? And somebody might say, but there's a difference between those two people. There's a difference between uh, uh, some of the, uh, the terrorists that we know of today and uh, Osama bin Laden and uh, some of those that uh, walked this earth at one time. There's a difference between them and, say, the Pope. Yeah, there's a difference. But there's really, must, there, there might be a difference between a doctor who has his education. He uses his abilities and his talent to heal and he uses his talent to, uh, uh, to do good. But what about the doctor who performs abortions? Well, there's a difference there, right? From a human standpoint, there's a difference between their works. And from our vantage point, we see some people work good and some people work evil. And yet from a heavenly standpoint, God looks on all of our works as they appear beside his righteousness. And it still leaves us guilty in his sight. Now, if you can imagine, I've never been to New York City. Maybe you've been to New York City. But if you, I've seen pictures. I've seen a lot of things on television of New York. But if you imagine seeing New York City from a boat in a harbor, it'd be easy to see the difference in the buildings, wouldn't it? You look at the skyline of a city like New York or Chicago. Some are very short and some are very tall. Some seem to go forever into the sky almost. 
But imagine seeing the same city from the window of an airplane flying overhead from the top. From that vantage point, it's impossible to tell which ones are taller and which ones are short. It's a matter of perspective. And unfortunately, man's perspective will not count for anything when it comes time to face judgment for his sins. So sin has tarnished our souls. Fourthly, sin has tarnished our speech. Notice verse 13. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Paul moves uh, uh, to tell us, uh, moves on to tell us that sin has ruined our speech. He's just echoing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 12, it says, O generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his, of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. In chapter 15 and verse 18, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile the man. In fact, your words will reveal the condition of your heart. Notice what the writer says about the sinner's speech here. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 13 and 14. It's going to have the smell of a rotting corpse. I don't know if you've ever smelled that, but I don't think you really want to. Uh, but he's, uh, you listen to the language of society and you can tell that there are men who are rotten on the inside. If not, then tell me why so many of our slang and curse words have to do with the filthiness of man and perverted sexual acts. It has the smell of a rotting corpse. In Psalm 5 and verse 9, it says, For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is a very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. I want you to notice the symbols here. The throat is a sepulcher or a grave. Notice the meaning. Man's speech stinks like the open grave. Now, that was probably more prevalent in the place where this was written in the Middle East where you have a hot climate, you open up a grave and there's going to be a a stench that comes out from that grave. You know, when you go to the doctor to get a checkup, they usually ask you to open your mouth, don't they? And then he takes a little wooden stick and he pushes it around in your mouth and he looks down your throat. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ the great physician, as he looks into the mouths of mankind, here he says, their throat is an open sepulcher. And I don't know how many of you have ever smelled that decaying human flesh, but it's not a pleasant smell. Uh, I know. I used to drive an ambulance when I was going to school back in Kansas. Didn't happen very often, I'm so thankful, that on occasion I would be called to pick up a body of someone who had been dead several days. It's not a pleasant job. I don't think one could ever get used to the smell of corrupt human flesh. But when God looks down at mankind, He doesn't say, 
Oh, what a sweet, fine little boy or girl. God says, man smells like an open grave. Someone said, if we could see ourselves as God sees us, we couldn't stand ourselves. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. Secondly, notice he says it's filled with lies and deception. Our tongues, our, 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 our speech exaggerates our own greatness. It flatters, it lies without remorse. Lying has become the national pastime in our country. From everywhere, from the White House to the church house. It's another indication that man is a wicked sinner. Again, when the doctor says, open your mouth, he not only looks at your throat, but he also sometimes says, stick out your tongue. And when God looks at the tongue of mankind, that means your tongue, your tongue, my tongue. Do you know what he says? Well, that brings us to a third thing about our speech. It's like a deadly poison. It's like a deadly poison. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Their tongues they have used as seat. And the poison of asp is under their lips. Think of the souls damned to hell by the poison of false doctrine that dripped from the lips of some infidel preacher. Think of the deadly poison that has ruined the life and the reputation of godly people through gossip and, and rumors. The tongue is a wicked thing. No wonder the Lord sealed it behind a wall of flesh and a wall of ivory. No wonder he tells us to tame the tongue as to be able to control the entire body and to live perfectly. Again, notice the symbol here, the tongue and the lips. They're like a snake or a serpent. And notice the meaning, the asp. Here is the Egyptian cobra, a deadly serpent. Its poison is contained in a bag under the lips. James uses a very similar illustration in James chapter 3. It's like deadly poison. And then fourthly, it's a weapon of devastating power. The tongue of the sinner is a dreadful thing. It can ruin lives. It can damage the testimony and reputations of people. It can do more damage than a lifetime of right living can undo. And notice verse 14 again, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Psalm 10 and verse 7 says, His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. Again, notice the symbol, the mouth. Words that one uses. When you speak, you speak with your mouth. It speaks of the words. Notice the meaning. The tendency to speak hatefully sometimes to one another. Bitterness applies to the bitterness of the spirit to which men vent by using bitter words. All deceit and fraud is a bitter, is bitter in the end. It's desolating. It's afflicting. In Psalm 64 and verse 3, it says, Who wet or who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words. I don't know how you use your tongue, but I do know how you speak reveals the condition of your heart. Remember what the Lord said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So sin has tarnished our spirits our senses, our souls, our speech. It's also tarnished our steps. Verse 15. Their feet 
are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. Paul tells us the influence of sin in our lives has caused us to be extraordinarily cruel and wicked in the way we walk. Notice what he says about the sinful heart. He says, we are quick to shed blood. Isaiah 59, 7, their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. Proverbs 1 and verse 16, for their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. And again, notice some of the symbols here. The symbol of the feet. Walking in the path of evil. And the meaning would be sinfulness, violence, injustice of men when we, uh, when not restrained by the goods of society uh, or laws. Now here it speaks of murder. And one need not look any further than the statistics concerning abortion to know that that's true. Let alone the murder in some of the major cities uh, uh, across our country. Since 1973, more than 30 million children have been murdered legally in this country. More than 10 times the total number of war dead from every war in American history. From the Revolutionary War on through uh, the current wars that we're fighting. According to statistics, during the 20th century, twice as many American citizens died by murder than all the wars put together. One researcher has concluded that a child born in the 80s in America had a greater chance of being murdered than the American soldier had to be killed during battle in World War II. You see, as a nation, we're guilty. And so we're quick to shed blood. That comes from a sinful heart. Secondly, people are growing more and more brutal. Paul says the destruction and misery is in their paths. That is, as people go through life, they're guilty of stepping on one another just to have their way. Often lives are lost or permanently damaged by people who simply are brutal in the way that they, what they live. And it's being promoted in our television shows. It's being promoted in the video games that are played. People are growing more and more brutal. Again, notice the symbol here. Is It says the way of destruction. Destruction. The path of sin. Notice the meaning. Ruin and distress wherever they go. And then, thirdly, people do not really want peace. And the way of peace have they not known. Verse 17. Isaiah 59 and verse 8 says the way of peace they know not. And there is no judgment in their goings. They have not made... Them crooked paths, whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. Again, notice the symbol here. The way of peace. Way of peace is nonviolence. Notice the meaning. Basically, people just want to have their own way. They don't care about the rights of others, and they'll stop at nothing to achieve all their own goals and their dreams. People really don't want peace. They talk about it, but they don't live like it. And then there's one other aspect of what sin has done. Sin has tarnished our sight. Sin has tarnished our sight. Look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36, 1, the transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. Here the symbol is the eyes. Speaks of spiritual darkness. And the meaning is no reverential fear of God. And this is why he's able to be all these other things. This is why he's able to live the kind of life that he does. And to put it simply, men just do not fear the Lord. God has already told mankind what will happen as a result of their sins. But man has chosen not to believe the word of God. In fact, most people live as though God doesn't even exist. You know what that's called? That's called practical atheism. This kind of person knows there is a God. He knows there is a hell. He knows that he needs to live for the Lord, and yet he chooses to live his own life, his own way, and live as if there is no God. That frees them from restrictions on behavior and allows them to do as they please. You know what? God has a name for that kind of people. It's found in Psalm 14 and verse 1. They're called a fool. A fool. I didn't call them that. God did. It's the fear of God that motivates men to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. It's the fear of God that motivates a Christian to live for God. Fear is a healthy force for righteousness. And if that fear is born out of a desire to please God. Sin has tarnished our spirits, our senses, our souls, our speech, our steps, and our sight. It's a very ugly picture of the problem of man. Sin is ugly. Now Satan wants to make it look beautiful. It comes right down to it. It's not really a very pretty picture at all. Sin is a universal problem. Sin is an ugly problem. And then thirdly, sin is an undeniable problem. We come to the final thing here in this text here that Paul says about sin. Because there are still those who say, well, we have the law and we'll keep the law. We'll hold to it. Notice in verse 19, man's sin is declared by the law. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be Come guilty before God. Because the law of God condemns all things that man is guilty of, man stands condemned by the law. The law has the ability to show us that uh, how wicked we really are. Someone has said, well, it's the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. Well, no one can look into the word of God and miss the truth of what Paul is saying. Just remember Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the word of God that shows us how wretched we really are. Man's sin is declared by the law. Secondly, man's sin is damned by the law. Verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You know, God gave the law to man as a tool. It was given to show man that he's a sinner and to drive man to Jesus. If the law had one purpose, it was to show us that we're guilty. You know, the law is like a mirror. James 1 says, 
Uh, in verse 23, if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. The law is like a mirror. It can show you how dirty your face is. But you know what? You can look in the mirror in the morning and you can see that your face is dirty after you've had that chocolate donut and it's all dripping down there on your cheek. But you know what? The mirror doesn't do anything to clean it up, does it? You don't take a mirror and rub it on your face to clean it off. The mirror is there to point us to the water and the soap. So it is with the law. The law cannot clean you up, but it can create a hunger in us for the one who can, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, looking into the law cannot save you. Living without, out of the law or living out the law cannot save you. The only thing that can save a sinner is coming to Jesus Christ by faith. And we have too many who are trying to, to good their way to God, if you please. It simply will not work. The Bible is clear. Ye must be born again. And so I challenge any person here tonight who believes that you can keep the law and be saved, take this verse and explain it. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. And the word justified there means declared righteous, to be saved, to meet God's standards. You can't do it. Well, the conclusion of this, I think, is very clear. We're all sinners before the Lord. And there's one solution for our sins, and it won't be found in doing good things and being a good person. Now, I hope that you're a good person this week. I hope you young people are good in your homes and in your schoolwork. But you know what? That won't save you. Being a good person... Being a helpful person, being doing good deeds is not, is not going to save you. It can only be found in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question this evening is, are you saved by grace through faith? If you were to die this evening, would you die as a child of God, completely trusting in Jesus and nothing else to take you to heaven? How do you stand before the Lord? Well, like I said, it's not a very pretty picture. And it's not a message that is pleasant to preach because we're talking about sin. But I trust that we realize this is the Word of God and this is what God says about it. Let's pray. Our Father.